On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's Sharing Spiritual Heritage Report asks, How will we hold on to ancient wisdom traditions while applying them creatively in today's time? Learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with the late Irish poet and philosopher John O'Donohue. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's come back again. Yeah, Great. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I was going to say to you, I, I love this line. This was from a, uh, an interview you did somewhere else. That you said one, one way to talk about what you do is you excavate the Celtic and Judeo-Christian philosophical and literary traditions to try to bring them into conversation with our modern hunger and questioning. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that I don't think our culture, this culture has any imagination at all about what that kind of excavation can yield yes. for us. Yes. And yes. I think it's also a nice way to describe sorry. some of what we do with this program. Yeah, 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 yeah. good. Yeah. So just a, a little bit closer, you sound a little okay. uh, less okay. present. All right. And we, you know, this is a real conversation. It will be edited later, so it doesn't have to be Good. especially linear. If we can start and okay, stop, great. you can say, let me read a poem, you know. Lovely. Okay. Excellent. That All gives right. a lovely All freedom. Right. The, uh, the one thing is if you are shuffling pages, yeah. you know, stop talking while you're doing that, because that's Good. something so we couldn't exactly. edit out. Good. Okay. And I'm going to take off my jewelry, so. Okay. How do you, should we just, well, let's get levels and make sure they're happy with us back there. Do you have any questions for me? I don't. I trust you. Let's go. Do you know what I mean? Let's go. And <laughs> yeah. it's, it's more exciting yeah. not to have the substantive conversation mm-hmm. first. I agree. And to see what will come. I don't, I don't believe in pre-interviews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah? Can we go? Okay. Would you like to read that poem to start? Yeah. All right. This is a poem I wrote several years ago, and it's called Banacht, which is the Gaelic word for blessing. And there's another Gaelic word in the poem, which is the word Corrock, which is a canvas boat or a canoe, you'd call it. So I'd like to read this for our listeners. Banacht. On the day when the weight deadens on your shoulders and you stumble, may the clay dance to balance you. And when your eyes freeze behind the grey window and the ghost of loss gets into you, may a flock of colours, indigo, red, green and azure blue, come to awaken in you a meadow of delight. When the canvas frays in the corrock of thought and a stain of ocean blackens beneath you, may there come across the waters a path of yellow moonlight to bring you safely home. May the nourishment of the earth be yours. May the clarity of light be yours. May the fluency of the ocean be yours. May the protection of the ancestors be yours. And so may a slow wind work these words of love around you, an invisible cloak to mind your life. Can you tell me what inspired that or who you were thinking of or what you were thinking of? Uh, I was thinking actually of my mother and I subsequently dedicated the poem to her. And um, uh, the poem took its impulse, I suppose, as every poem does, from a moment which is, you know, if you're uh, from a farming background as I am and you're working, if you get off 
balance, then everything comes on top of you. Mm. So when the weight deadens on your shoulders and you stumble, that's where it began. And then I thought of the earth restoring the balance and then the invocations through the different sensualities of colour and spirit and just uh, blessing the person. And I suppose in the Celtic tradition, you know, there is a huge tradition of blessing. And I mean, it was always uh, that at home when we'd begin a day's work. My father had always kind of do a blessing. And then when we'd finish in the evening, there'd be just would be just an informal, but a recognition, first of all, that we'd be given the health to do it, that we were able to do it and that what we did was really good. Hmm. Tell me a little bit more about where you come from and and what formed you, um, what began to form you to to come to the spiritual perspective and philosophical and poetic perspective that you have now? Well, I suppose I was blessed uh, by being born into an amazing landscape in the west of Ireland. Yes. <laughs> and it's the Burn region, which is limestone. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's a bare limestone landscape. And I often think that the forms of the limestone are so abstract and aesthetic. And it is as if they were all laid down by some wild, surrealistic kind of deity. So soon, uh, being a child and coming out into that, it was waiting like a huge, wild invitation to extend your imagination. Mm. And then it's right on the edge of the ocean as well. So the conversation, an ancient conversation between the ocean and the stone going on. And then as well, my family that I was born into... um, where I suppose people who had an immense respect for the invisible world and uh, it was always present in story and in recognition. And my father, too, I'd say, you know, and I later on then I had a lot to do, obviously, with religious people. I'd say that my father was the holiest man I ever met because of his ability just to slip into the presence. Mm. He wouldn't know what the word mystical meant or the word psychology, but yet in some way, He was always on ground, which was in conversation with subtle but ultimate horizons. Hmm. I know that landscape is a really pivotal word for you that you use, not just in describing the natural world, but but an important word in talking about how human beings know themselves and move through the world. I've been to, I haven't been to precisely the place you're from, but... I think the west coast of Scotland, the west coast of Ireland, it is this completely unusual, this wild, raw, bleak beauty. Um, but talk to me about how you have come to understand landscape in that, you know, as something that forms each of us. Well, I think it makes a huge difference when you wake in the morning and come out of your house. Whether you believe you're walking into dead geographical location, which is used to get to a destination, or whether you're emerging out into a landscape that is just as much, if not more, alive as you, but in a totally different form, and that it subsists primarily in silence, stillness and solitude. But that if you attend to it, and if you go towards it, with an open heart and a real 
watchful reverence that you will be absolutely amazed at what it will reveal to you. And uh, I think that that was one of the recognitions of the Celtic imagination, mm. that landscape wasn't just matter, but that it was actually alive. And uh, the more I, I've been thinking about this, you know, the way we make divisions all the time between the visible world and the invisible world. And it's as if the invisible world is the poor relation and the visible world is ultimate ground and reality. And the more I've been thinking about this, the more it seems to me actually is that the visible world is the first shoreline of the invisible world and the same way I believe with the body and the soul that actually the soul the body is in the soul not the soul just in the body and that in some way the poignance of being a human being is that you are the place where the invisible becomes visible and expressive in some way and I think it's the same way with landscape what amazes me about landscape is its zen thereness, and mm. I, and I've heard your wonderful interview with Thich Nhat Hanh, and the beauty and gentle authority of mindfulness as the ultimate capacity for witness. And in a certain sense, la landscape recalls you into a mindful mode of stillness solitude and silence where you can truly receive time rather than mangling it which we do with it most of the time are, are you just talking though about landscape as as the natural world around us I, I'll, I'll tell you I remember um, a summer I spent a few years after I had first gone to this beautiful raw wild edge of Scotland and I was working with children in a very impoverished inner city neighborhood and I would often wish that I could just transport them, you know, for an hour. So that what they saw when they opened their eyes and looked around them was that kind of beauty that opened so much possibility. Such a sense of generosity in the universe. Because what they saw around them, many of them when they walked out the, when they opened their eyes in the morning, when they walked out their door was, you know, they didn't have access to that. So I wonder how this Celtic sensibility would also speak to people who don't have that kind of beauty at hand, that kind of beauty. Yeah, I, I do agree with you that, uh, and the implicit critique in your question is that an awful lot of urban planning, particularly in poor areas, has doubly impoverished the poor by the ugliness which surrounds them. Mm. And I, I think it's really coarse and grotesque. And it's understandable that it's so difficult to reach and sustain gentleness there. And I do think, like a friend of mine just in the last week who was absolutely exhausted in London, just came away down to southern England and spend the week by the slow ocean and she's totally recovered you know, right, she's right. come back to herself yes. uh, but I do think though that it's not just a matter of the outer presence of the landscape. I think that if you're brought out there or if you have some sense of the elemental, I mean, the dawn goes up and the twilight comes even in the most mm -hmm. roughest mm -hmm. inner city place. And I think that connecting to the elemental can be a way of coming into rhythm with the universe that's there. I mean, I think I heard Brian Swim say at one time that we're one of the first generations that have successfully managed to forget that we actually live in a universe. <laughs> and I do think that there is a way in which the outer presence, even through memory or imagination, can be brought inward as a sustaining thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that, uh, and it's the question of beauty, I mean, you're asking essentially. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think that uh, as we're speaking, uh, 
that there are individuals holding out on front lines, holding the humane tissue alive in mental institutions, in prisons, in refugee camps, in war zones, in areas of ultimate barbarity where things are visible that the human eye should never see and they're able to sustain it because there is in them some kind of sense of beauty that knows the horizon that we're really called to in some Mm. way. I love Pascal's phrase, you know, that uh, you should always keep something beautiful in your mind. And I've often, like in Mm. times when it's been really difficult for me, if you can keep some kind of little contour that you can glimpse sideways at now and again, you can endure great bleakness. Mm. And I'd like to talk some more about, you you mentioned your father being able to have a sense of the invisible. And I, I do think that is such a, an intriguing and strong part of the Celtic sensibility and so foreign to this culture in the United States. I've always been intrigued by this notion of thin places, thin times, um, also this sense that there, you know, that, that, the, that, the, that the spiritual and the, that the eternal and the temporal can touch. Um, how was how that how was that communicated to you? How did that enter your imagination as a child? And how do you live with that kind of as just part of who you are? Yeah, well, I mean, philosophically, just to begin philosophically, I Mm -hmm. mean, I think that one of the real excitements of being a human being, as Heidegger said, is that you are the place in which the universe or the earth becomes visible to itself or becomes conscious of itself or you become a mirror for it in somewhere, what he called Dasein, that being there, there's mm-hmm. an opening in you. That's the vulnerability of humans is that there's a helpless opening to the eternal in us. And, and we all have to do it. Like we might, You might have had it for 70 years, but you never get out of here without having to do it in some way. And um, philosophically understood, I mean, it's this distinction between being and consciousness, you know, that being is always there and we're knee deep, neck deep in it. And consciousness somehow separates us because the little splinter, the fragment that doesn't belong and that opening means that we're always trying to get home, to come in home. It also means that we're always confronted by dualities like you have outlined it there, Crystal, like time and eternity. You could also say soul and senses. You could say God and human. You could say masculine and feminine. You could say memory and possibility. And I think this is where the beauty of the imagination works. I think the imagination is committed to what I'd call a justice of wholeness and bringing all these together. The mind separates. And when the mind separates and draws barriers in the heart of these dualities, which and the barrier becomes a real barrier, so they're no longer porous space for breathing, then you have dualism. And then you have things cut off that should belong together. Mm-hmm. And that's the heart of all fundamentalisms and fascisms. And I think that keeping one's imagination alive always keeps you in vital conversation with the othernesses that you tend to avoid or neglect. So in terms of being brought up um, in a folk culture, I mean, it was naturally there. It was as natural as any other thing to us to know that there were fields where there were things seen that you shouldn't kind of interfere with, to know that, uh, like I think we were always told, for instance, because we had land up the mountain and often if we were working late in the bog or the meadow and you should go up and get the cows to milk them, it would be almost dark. And there was this deserted village that you'd come through. And we were always sure as kids like that it was full of ghosts. But the one thing we were always told was that if you ever saw anything, 
you asked it what it wanted which psychologically is a wonderful question you know <laughs> what do you want because yes. then a naming can happen and if you could the idea was that you know people who have gone into the eternal world that maybe have left certain things unfinished after them and that you could help to complete that so that they could find peace and then all the names like in a, of the village of the fields all the fields in our valley have different names and it's a thing I intend to do uh, before Christmas or in the spring is find all the names and put them on maps for people so that they're not lost, you know. Mm -hmm. So that in actual fact, there is a visual narrative there of all these kind of presences in a way. So it was both natural and then naturally when I went on to do philosophy and literature and that, I kind of deepened these first nascent intuitions and uh, brought it into some kind of thing where you could see the imagination as if you'd like the sistering presence that would insist on the dualities being themselves but then could bring them together into some kind of uh, creative and critical harmony with each other. Did you encounter presences that you asked who they were and what they were about? I never did. Like, actually, you mm -hmm. know, but you'd sense things, you mm -hmm. know, but and mm -hmm. you'd be and I'm glad I didn't because I mean, you'd be scared <laughs> of your life, especially as a child yeah. for something like that. But you knew it was as if you were in the neighborhood of a very subtle otherness that might disclose itself or might withhold itself. Mm -hmm. But that didn't in any way diminish the kind of, and I'll use the word, the facticity of its presence, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been um, working on looking back at the thought of the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, and, uh, and he has this statement at the beginning of his book, The Nature and Destiny of Man, you know, the first line, man is his own most vexing problem. Or I think of a great a kind of pivotal work in this culture of modern psychology, M. Scott Peck's book, which begins, Life is Difficult. And then I read this line, which begins your book, Anamkara, uh, which is also a different way of kind of analyzing the human condition. It's strange to be here. The mystery never leaves you. Talk to me about that as, as a way of of thinking about what it means to be human and how you come to that and what you mean when you when you write okay. those words. I mean, I think it echoes in what you've been talking about. Yes, but one of the sentences that I love from Plato, and it's in the Timaeus, I think he talks of taumatsain, this awakening up and the recognition that something is missing. And I think that awakening is one of the most beautiful things in the world because I think when you awaken... You lose your familiarity with what you thought was naturally there and grounded forever. But at the same time, you begin to perceive the strangeness of where you are and receive it in a different kind of way. And I mean, when you think about language and you think about consciousness, it's just incredible to think that we can make any sounds that can reach over across to each other at all. Because, I mean, I think we're I think the beauty of being human is that we're incredibly intimately near each other. We know about each other, but yet we do, not, we do not know or never can know what it's like inside another person. Like Maya Angelou yeah. said at one time that even lovers who lie side by side think different thoughts. And Pasternak in his beautiful novel of Resurrection, Dr. Zhivago, says nothing isolates a person from another person so much as the species of their perception. And like that's why I think that thought is such an amazing thing. 
And why, you know, I see in the work that I do now, sometimes people dying to change and they want to change and some change their partner, they change their work, they change where they live, all the rest of it. And often all they do is end up becoming more the same as they were before. And I think that the primary radical subversive way of changing is to change the way you think. Mm -hmm. And often to these poor humans who come and go listening to me, I give them this exercise, which I think I've tried to do for myself. I think it's a very interesting exercise is to recognize that there are seven, let's just say seven, seven fundamental thoughts that actually structure and ground your foundation of meaning and to find out what they are and to take a white page and over weeks or months to see what are the seven thoughts that I really think and that I always subtly or implicitly come back to. And then when you've written them down, leave them alone for a few months and then ask yourself again, because I have been so faithfully married to these seven thoughts for all these years, where are the other seven that I've never even flirted with or have had an <laughs> affair with? And then when you get them written down, then you get a re-look at the way your thought world is actually constructed. Because the mystery of thought is that it's where otherness, strangeness, dislocation, intimacy and belonging comes home. It's the biggest mirror we have. And it's amazing, you know. Here am I sitting in front of you now looking at your face. You're looking at mine. And yet neither of us have ever seen our own faces. And that in some way, thought is the face that we put on the meaning that we feel and that we struggle with. And that the world is always larger and more intense and stranger than our best thought will ever reach. Mm -hmm. And that's the mystery of poetry, you know, is poetry tries to draw alongside the mystery as it's emerging and somehow bring it into presence and into birth. And I might read another poem okay. now. And this is a poem about birth. It's called, I tried to write 15 sonnets on the structure of the rosary. And this... This is the nativity, which is the birth of Christ. And I also used it as an archetype for all kinds of birth. Because I think that seeing is birth, really. Consciousness. Mm. So this is the nativity. No man reaches where the moon touches a woman. Even the moon leaves her when she opens deeper into the ripple in her womb that encircles dark to become flesh and bone. Someone is coming ashore inside her. A face deciphers itself from water and she curves around the gathering wave opening to offer the life it craves. In a corner stall of pilgrim strangers, she falls and heaves, holding a tide of tears. A red wire of pain feeds through every vein until night unweaves and the child reaches dawn. Outside each other now, she sees him first, flesh of her flesh, her dreamt son safe on earth. What do you mean when you write that everyone is an artist? I mean that everyone is involved, whether they like it or not, in the construction of their world. I could ground this phenomenologically with you, in the sense that phenomenologically, consciousness is always consciousness of something. And there is no fixed world out there. The world is coming towards you and you're coming towards it. And between the two of you, you actually construct the world. So it's never as given as it actually looks. You're always uh, shaping it and building it. And um, you're entering it 
in a different kind of way every time. And uh, I feel that uh, from that perspective that each of us is an artist. Secondly, I believe that everyone has imagination. You know the way some people say, oh, that's all right for the artistic crowd, right. but I'm not imaginative. I don't believe that for two reasons. One is that no matter how mature and adult and sophisticated a person might seem, that person is still essentially a next baby. And as children, we all lived in an imaginal world. You know, when you'd be told, don't cross that wall because there's monsters over there. My God, the world you would create on the other side of the wall. <laughs> you know, and right. like when you'd ask questions like, why is the sky blue or where does God live? Or, you know, all this kind of stuff. Like one of the first times I was coming to America, I said to my little niece who was seven, I said, what will I bring you from America? She said, uh. And her father said, no, ask him or, or you won't get anything. And Katie turned to me and said, what's in it? <laughs> Which I thought was a great question about America. <laughs> so that childlike thing. And secondly, like that every night when we sleep, we dream. And a dream is a sophisticated, imaginative text full of figures and drama that we send to ourselves. So I believe that deep in the heart of each of us, there is this imagining, imaginal capacity that we have so that we are all doing it. I mean, I consider the greatest artistic achievement of all is to actually create a child and bring them into the world. Mm. You know, mm. mothers, I think, are the hidden artists. It's amazing mm -hmm. what, that that whole thing, you know. But then, of course, you're stuck with the second bit, you know, which is like Plato's lovely thing that one of the greatest privileges of a human being is to become midwife to the birth of a soul in another person, right. which means then the birthing of the mind and the soul, then which gives the person their life in a completely new way. And as I read you, I, I think what you're also saying is that just the act of living, of creating our lives, of growing, moving forward in time, is a creative act. Absolutely, it is a creative act. Because it is a work of art. That's right. To, to elevate, to ennoble, to give ennobling words to something we're doing. That's right. Because the amazing thing about us, I mean, this is, we're so strange, you know, and we lose sight, actually, of how strange we are. I mean, one of the things since I was a child that has always amazed me is transience. You know, that um, you live a day, say, an intense day of great joy and delight that you loved and you say, you know, as Van, the mystic, says, Mama always said there'd be days like this, you know, just a day, like uh, a perfect day. And then the next day you look back over your shoulder and there is no place you can look to find this day. I mean, I'm always amazed that you never meet a human. You meet humans looking for all kinds of things and you never meet a human and you say to them, what are you looking for? And they say, I'm looking for yesterday. Where did yesterday go to? We just take it that it goes into nothingness. Mm. And... Um, there, that's on one side. The other thing, of course, is that we've no idea what will land on the shoreline of morning tomorrow. So that we're always actively involved in receiving and shaping, you know. And I think that's one of the major mistakes we make with time, actually, is that we equate it with space when in actual fact time is unshaped. And that's one of the things I always think is that uh, expectation creates the future and the imagination that you bring to the new dawn will surprise you and bless you with new things. You know, that sometimes the actual um, depth of your approach to a thing will be what coaxes the thing to honor that depth and yield more to you. You wrote um, about time. Uh, possibility is the secret heart of time. On its outer surface, time is vulnerable to transience um, in its deeper heart Time is transfiguration. Uh, but I wonder how you are able to have, I don't know, I think a larger 
sense of time be, because of in, as an inheritor of, of, of the Celtic tradition? And yeah, I think that's a bit of it, you know, that old mm-hmm. Celtic thing, because, I mean, there is in Ireland, like still, even though it's getting consumerized so fast, there is still in the West of Ireland where I live a sense of time, you know, that there's time for things. Right. Uh, and that when God made time, he made plenty of it and all the rest of it. And like, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, a friend of mine, this is an anecdote that I heard years ago, which I think is so sweet. There's this beautiful pub in the middle of Connemara. And a friend of mine went into it one day in October when he had should have been doing something else but he arrived in and there was nobody in the pub except the barman and an old man at the bar with what Mick Jagger once called that faraway look in his eyes <laughs> so my friend went in and the barman just pinted at the Guinness my friend nodded and he sat up and there was no sound but just the clock ticking then it went on for three or four minutes till the pint was filled then he gave it to my friend and the barman's name was Jack so it went 10, 15, about 18 minutes with no word said and then my friend said to Jack he said how's it going Jack? And Jack said, we're trying, he said, not to get too excited <laughs> with absolutely nothing going on, you know. So there's that sense of ease. And you see, I think that one of the huge difficulties in modern life is um, the way time has become the enemy. It's, it's Time ma- is a bully. We're captive to totally. it. Totally. And I'd say seven out of every ten people that turn up in a doctor's surgery mm-hmm. are suffering from something stress-related. Now, there are big psychological tomes written on stress. But for me, philosophically, stress is a perverted relationship to time. So that rather than being a subject of your own time, you have become its target and mm-hmm, victim. Mm-hmm. And time has become routine. So at the end of the day, you probably haven't had a true moment for yourself. And, you know, to relax in and to just be. Meister Eckhart, whom I love, said, you know, so many people come to me asking how I should pray, how I should think, what I should do. And the whole time they neglect the most important question, which is how should I be? And I think when you slow it down, then you find your rhythm. And when you come into rhythm, then you come into a different kind of time. Because you know the way in this country there's all the different zones. I think there are these zones within us as well. There's surface time, mm-hmm. which is really rapid fire Ferrari time. And overstructured. Yeah, overstructured. Mm-hmm. Like, and stolen from you, thieved all the time. And then if you slip down, like Dan Siegel, my friend, has this lovely meditation, you know. You imagine the surface of the ocean is all restless. And then you slip down deep below the surface where it's still and where things move slower. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you would suggest that people need to create more space and stillness. But I think what you're also saying is that that simply by thinking differently about time, by approaching it differently, by putting on a new imagination, uh, we can have a different sense of it. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Because I, I think that if you take time not as calendar product but as actually the parent or mother of presence, then you see that in the world of spirit, time behaves differently, actually. I mean, when I used to be a priest, it was an amazing thing, you know. Uh, You'd see somebody who would be dying over a week, maybe, and had lived maybe a hard life where they were knuckled into themselves, where they were hard and tight and unyielding and everything had to air in its way to their centre. And suddenly then you'd see that within three or four days you'd see them loosen and you'd see a kind of buried beauty that they'd never allowed themselves to enjoy about themselves surface and bring a radiance to their face and, and spirit. And why did it surface then? Because suddenly like there was a recognition mm-hmm. 
that the time was over and that this that that their way of being could no longer help them with this and that another way of being was being invited from them and when they yielded to it 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 was became transformative and it, it just means that actually when you change time levels that something can transform incredibly quickly mm. i mean i always think that that's the secret of change that there are huge gestations and fermentations going on in us that we're not even aware of. And then sometimes when we come to a threshold, crossing over which we need to become different, that we'll be able to be different because secret work has been done in us of which we've had no inkling. And where did that work come from? Who, who directed that work? What, what is that? I, my suspicion would be I can't say who directed that work. Mm. But my suspicion is that the soul choreographs one's biography and one's destiny. In Ireland, I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way to you. Like in Ireland, there's an indirectness. Like I think it was Freud or Jung said the Irish were unpsychoanalyzable. Because there's <laughs> all this, you know, indirectness. It also comes from our <laughs> colonial background because like you wouldn't say too much because you could be caught out. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is this indirectness, like, and if you say to somebody, how are you? They'd say, oh, not too bad. Like, And I was always amazed when I came to the land of the free and the home of the exceptionally brave, <laughs> that if I put too much sincerity into the question, how are you? I could have unleashed a biography in seconds, you know, yes. <laughs> and that you'd get information that you'd never dream of. And it often seems to me here that a person believes that if they tell you your, their story, that that's who they are. And sometimes these stories are constructed of the most banal, second-hand psychological and spiritual cliché. And you look at a beautiful, interesting face telling a story that you know doesn't hold a candle to the life that's secretly in there. So what I think happens here a bit is that there's a reduction of identity to biography. And they're not the same Mm. thing. I think biography unfolds identity and makes it visible and puts the mirror of it out there. But I think identity is a more complex thing. And what I love in this regard is my old friend, Meister Eckhart, the 14th century mystic. Right, German mystic. Mm -hmm. German mystic. And one day I read in him and he said, there is a place in the soul. There's a place in the soul that neither time nor space nor no created thing can touch. And I, I really thought that was amazing. And if you uh, cash it out, what it means is that, in a, that your identity is not equivalent to your biography and that there is a place in you where you have never been wounded, where there is still a sureness in you, where there's a seamlessness in you and where there is a confidence and tranquility in you. And I think the intention of prayer and spirituality and love is now and again to visit that inner kind of sanctuary. Mm. You know, Can I read maybe another, yes, sure. another poem? Mm-hmm. Um, this is a poem that, um, it's, in a way, it's, it could be about a meeting, falling in love, but it could also be about the mystical moment, is that when you run into the deity or the divinity, that everything gets transformed and changed. It can be frightening, but it also can be very exciting. So this is called Since You Came. It is not water, I cannot lie in it, nor can my hands reach forward for any rhythm to draw me near to where a shore might be. It is not ground either, no place for a foothold, nor can my eyes find mountains where fields might serve the stay of stones that harbour only hunger for the here and now. 
It is not completely fire, though the burning has begun, to singe the cords that tie the heart's basket to the one tree I thought I knew. It is more the air that has lost its nerve to hold the vase of thought, the word-scratched air that lets the white rain in to wash the red font of memory. Hmm. You know, I think a lot about how in Western culture and in, in the in United in the United States culture, um, really important words get watered down and and almost ruined, and yet we still need them. And love is one of those words. And friendship, I think, may also be were a word which we haven't. We struggle to to not let our definition of that become impoverished. And and um, and I, I just wanted to ask you about that. Uh, obviously, we don't want to let those words go. But how do you how do you think about filling them um, with meaning again uh, from from the perspective you bring of Celtic tradition and and your your philosophy? I think you've asked a, a profoundly important question because I think one of the huge lonelinesses of modern America is the emptying and the, um, I'm looking for another word now, uh, you know when a tenant is expelled, what do they call that? You have to... Eviction. Eviction. Yes. Yeah, yeah just to phrase it again. I think that what you're pointing to is the eviction of essence and substance from some of the key words that hold a culture together. And I think language is really important. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I had I a great too. conversation when I, when I was launching the book, Connemara Blue was actually in New York with Robert Bly. He was reading with me and about the whole that language isn't just a vehicle or a medium, but it's actually a real presence there between us. And it's the place that we meet. And like it's Heidegger's wonderful phrase, you know, this the Sprache, ist das Haus der Seins, that language is the house of being. And if we vacate our language and evict spirit from it, then we're so lost. We, 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 we exchange then a living vital world for a ghostly underworld, and then anything can be said. I mean, like if I can be just a little bit more particular about this. Yeah. Here, I, one of the uh, places of huge disappointment for me is the response of the church to all the lies about war and everything here and the way language is used in ways to say the opposite of what the words actually want to say. And it would have been wonderful if some cardinal or bishop in some diocese, or maybe they did it, I don't know, brought out a, a pastoral a pastoral letter on the evacuation of language and the damage it's done to our spirit. And uh, you see, words are really honest presences. They mm. always show what's going on and they show up, you know, uh, what's there. My father used to say to us when we were children, you know, show me your friends and I'll tell you who you are. And for me, often it's the other way, uh, another way of going with that phrase, which is show me the words you use and I'll have a fair idea of what's happening or not happening with you. And um, How do we do it? I think one of the great things is that language is like the earth. It has a huge vitality and something that goes... Capacity for renewal. For renewal. Regeneration. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think the real custodians of language are the holy people and the artists. And, you know, I often say to people who come to workshops and have questions about individuality and psychology and consciousness and everything, I'd say, you know, don't trust the psychology manuals for words about who you are and describe yourself in that way. Find your own words and go to the mystics 
and go to the poets mm. and there you'll find language because poets hold language in a really uh, vital way. You know, and that's what W.H. Auden said uh, a poet does. A poet hangs around words to hear what they might be saying. Mm. So I think there's all kinds of hidden voices within words that uh, can come out. And I do think, like you say, that the word friendship is a hugely important word. I was out for dinner last night with the Being in Concert, the lovely people that have me here in Minneapolis, and uh, Pablo Gaito, a friend of mine, and other friends. And uh, we were talking about that, and, you know, one of the people was asking me about friendship, and I said, you know, you don't get to choose your family. You're dropped into them. But in a certain sense, your friends are almost your archetypally ideal family in a way. And the lens of friendship is the most important thing. I mean, Aristotle said... That's an interesting way to think about it. Yeah, Aristotle said, you know, if you could have all the goods that the world could give, but had to have them without friendship, you'd choose not to have Mm -hmm. them. Because friendship is the most beautiful thing. It's like it awakens you, you know. You learn to see yourself differently. Because as I was saying, we've never seen our own faces. It's almost as if, you know, and Merleau-Ponty says this, the philosopher, that the gaze of the other confirms my body. That it's almost like the presence of the friend confirms you. And you know the idea, like a fierce friendship too, that a really good friend will have a fierceness to confront you about your blind spots where you are not able to trust your own vision. And then the shelter of it. And I think the tragedy of consumerist culture is that we have clocked up all these acquaintances, like and people have palm pilots and all kinds of stuff now, that they have so many contacts on and all details about each other. But we have learned, we have become postgraduates in the art of acquaintance and paupers in the art of friendship. And, you know, just to, to bring this to a very practical level, I, I, I think that um, some of the most, some of the things we, we wring our hands about in our public life, like the, di- like the disintegration of marriages, uh, the, you know, kind of crisis of relationship, and, and then implications of that, like how do we raise our children to know what commitment is? And I actually think an impoverished um, sense of love and of friendship uh, complicates that. It, it makes us, you know, I, I often think, I mean, the crisis of love, of, of marriage is, is a crisis of love. And then I wonder, and I, and I really, you know, I'm asking you this as a philosopher and I think as a wise person, I mean, are we less capable of, of love and commitment and relationship in a, in a mature sense, you know, in our time than, than previous generations were? Um, or is this just a human dilemma that has different details in our time? That's a very interesting question. I don't think we're less capable at all. I think we're more unpracticed at it and therefore more desperate for it. Mm. Because I think there's a natural hunger in the spirit, in everyone's spirit, to be seen, to be understood as you are, and to be received in the space of friendship and love, which is like I always think of friendship and love ideally as safe spaces where you can be as you are without being judged or without being battered by the force of expectation to be a certain way. And I think the fact that we offer each other these spaces less and less puts us into more and more pressure zones and then that we choose other things to fill the emptiness mm. in uh, because of what we don't have. And um, I, I think that... Uh, I think it's a matter of attention, really, just attention, that if you realize how vital to your whole spirit and being and character and mind and health 
friendship actually is. You will take time for it, you know. And uh, the trouble is, though, for so many of us is that we have to be in trouble before Mm. we remember what's essential. And sometimes it's one of the lonelinesses of humans is that you hold on desperately to things that make you miserable and that sometimes you only realize what you have when you're almost about to lose it. So I think that it would be great to step back a little from one's life and see around one who are those that hold me dear, that truly see me and those that I need and to be able to go to them in a different way. Because the amazing thing about humans is, regardless of the morass of falsity which surrounds them, if they can be approached in a way where the true word of address to the soul is sounded, they're helpless but to react back with Mm -hmm. authenticity and integrity. And I think that we have immense capacity to reawaken in each other the profound ability to be with each other and to be intimate. That's one of the things I've always thought here is that, you know, there is a loneliness here that is covered over by this fake language of intimacy that you meet everywhere and that doesn't have, you know, everybody will say, have a nice day to you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you'd imagine if you went, turn back to them and say, God, I really wonder if I'll have a nice day or what the day'd be like. Things get complicated very suddenly, you know. Uh, But I, 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 and I think this is one of the key things in parenting and the difficulty of raising children in a very, very fast-moving culture, that, again, it's the difficulty of creating a space where children can actually unfold and uh, where they can be truly accompanied in their journey. Because I think young, young kids now in adolescence are going through huge, huge question zones that when we were young, we didn't go through. And there's immense capacity well, they, for conversation. They, also, they just know so much. They, oh, they do, and they're they so have, fast. They yeah. have such a sense of the complexity of what's ahead of them. That's that right. They're they grappling have. with that. They're grappling, advance. and it's yes. too much for them very <laughs> often. And you know what amazes me always is how the multinationals and the marketing people have them all in uniforms, you know, whereas they're really radical uh, teenagers and all that. But yet they end up with the same designer stuff mm-hmm. and all the rest of it. And uh, sometimes it's very lonesome to watch how distant parents feel from them because of their incapacity to somehow hold conversations with them that really need to happen. For instance, like uh, a friend of mine recently was telling me, you know, that uh, he was having lots of uh, tussle with his 16-year-old son who's a very beautiful child and has a lovely heart, but of course it's necessary tussle too, you know. And I was in their company and I called the 16-year-old aside and I said, can I say one thing to you that's very uncool and that you'll kill me for? And he said, yeah, (laughs) say it. And I said, you know, you have no idea of how proud your father is of you how he really sees you and how he admires you. And he stood back and he said, really? I said, yeah, don't ever say I told you. <laughs> you know, but I, I said, this is something you need to hear, you know. And I, I think some things, you know, in that kind of area, sometimes sometimes we, we're so pathetic in our ability to re- relate and we get stuck in tennis matches with each other, the ball, in the same way over the net, response, reaction, all the rest of it. <laughs> and then sometimes if you withdraw to the side, there are secret, unwatched places where we can completely reach each other, you know. I think something else that is connected to all of this that um, that we're not very self-aware about in this culture is the connection between our interior lives and our exterior appearance, not just physical appearance, but how we 
conduct our lives mm, in the light of other of expectations and you know even uh, ideas that we get from culture about how we should look, what we should wear. Um, I think that is something that you um, write about again that we that we just aren't attentive towards. Say something about that. Yeah, I I feel like in the book I wrote on beauty, I was trying to say that one of the huge confusions in our times is to mistake glamour for beauty. Yes. And glamour is an industry facade. And you look at uh, People magazine, Hello magazine in our culture, and you have all these airbrushed pictures looking out at you, semi-perfect faces. And then you look at the eyes and they look like holes to nowhere. There's such desperation in so many of them. And we do live in a culture which is very addicted to the image and is one of the most visually aggressive ages I think that there ever has been because when you think of it most people now worship at the vertical altar of the computer screen and are virtual citizens rather than being actual citizens Mm. maybe where they are in their own area and I think that um, there is always an uncanny symmetry between the way you are inward with yourself and the way you are outward And I feel that there is an evacuation of interiority going on in our times and that we need to draw back inside ourselves and that we'll find immense resources there. When you say symmetry, I don't think you mean that 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 there's an equality that. That, that what is inside of it, but that, that, that they are intimately connected. And that, They're that intimately connected. when yeah, we are putting precise. our yeah. energy outward, right. it's taking something from inside It's us. taking something, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's, that's exactly what I mean. Mm-hmm. It's taking something from inside and we're secretly uh, debilitating ourselves. And, you know, it's understandable too because if you look at the educational system and you look at most of the public fora in our culture, There is very little time or attention given to what you could almost call learning the art of inwardness or a pedagogy of interiority. That's why I find the aesthetic things like poetry, fiction, good film, theatre, drama, dance and music actually awaken that inside you, you know, and remind you that there is a huge interiority within you. Like, for instance, when I came into New York last Thursday evening and checked into the hotel, I found out that there was a Tchaikovsky concert on in the Lincoln Centre. And I went over there and I got a ticket, like one of the last tickets, which was two rows in the front. And I'd never been so near an orchestra. And I said, my God, I'm too near. Mm. And then I watched them and all the rest of it. But I knew why I was given the ticket then at the end, because it was uh, Tchaikovsky's um, violin concerto in D. And uh, Lauren Mazal came out to conduct it. And then this beautiful uh, violinist, Janine Jansen, a Dutch violinist, was her debut in, in, in New York. And she played this. It was just unbelievable. I cried. Like I, after the first movement, people spontaneously stood up and wanted to give her a standing ovation and she just held it. And we all went back again into our seats. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, people were just blown away because an event, an aesthetic event had happened. This is a complicated piece of music. Everywhere, she was playing a Stradivarius from 1727. Everywhere she went on this violin, she got exactly what she was looking for. She held it and Mazal was so sovereign and so, pay, you know, like a, a huge patriarch. And at three or four times, I was up close enough to see them. He looked at her with the wistful, proud gentleness of a grandfather. And there was this woman, this beautiful, slim body, and you could almost see the music hurting her even when she wasn't playing. So it was a huge, like everybody, and there were hardened New York critics there, but everybody was so touched. And I think that that's the magnificence of beauty, is that even in landscapes of control, corrugated categories, that you can be swept off your feet 
by just beauty. And I think that, like I always say to humans, you know, that for the mystical journey, you don't need to go to gurus. You don't need to read all this stuff. All you need is to build into your day some rhythm where you have some silence, stillness and solitude and everything you need to know will be shown to you you know I love that thing from the Desert Fathers where a young monk comes to an old monk and says teach me about wisdom and teach me about God and the old monk says return to your cell and it will teach you everything you need to know you also suggest uh, in your book about beauty that beauty mm, can be a kind of antidote even to our most pressing global crises. How do you think of beauty as relevant in that sense? Yeah, I think it's not just relevant, like, but I think it's actually necessary. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning, I quote uh, Hans-Urs von Balthasar, who said, beauty was the concept without which the ancient world refused to understand itself. And I think we always need it. And if you look at modern life, like one of the things that's really so disappointing is that there's such coarseness like in media, in talk shows and all this soap opera stuff in the way things are covered. And there is such a dearth of sensibility. You look at architecture and cities and all the rest of it. So little that you see that somehow houses the heart or raises the spirit. And um, I think once you begin to recognize that then you begin to see the need for beauty because I think that beauty is not a luxury but I think it it ennobles the heart and reminds us of the infinity that is within us I always love what Mandela said when he came out and I was actually in his cell in Robben Island one time I was in South Mm. Africa you know after 27 years in confinement for something you never for wrong you never committed he turned himself into a huge priest and came out with this sentence where he said you know that what we're afraid of is not so much our limitations but the infinite within us and I think that that is in everybody and I suppose the question that's at the heart of all we've been discussing really which is a beautiful question is the question of God you know Mm. and I think that one of the reason that so many people turn away from religion in our times is that the God question has died for them because the question has been framed in such repetitive dead language and I think it's the exciting question Noel Dermot, I don't know who's died and it was a great friend of mine, a contemplative um, mystic from Kerry and taught at the University in Edinburgh and he said to me one time, we were talking about God and he said, he used to call me always the lesser O'Donoghue he said, O'Donoghue, he said uh, (laughs) once you get a taste for the mountains, the foothills never satisfy you again and I always think that there is something like that in the God. Once you awaken to the well, presence of God. Well, you have said, you write, God is beauty. You yeah, I, I, yeah I, I have, yeah. Did you always feel that? Is that something, is that a sense that has grown in you or something that you name now? It's a sense that has grown in me, I suppose, that I've mm-hmm. always kind of had the intuition about it. Because I feel that there are two ways that you must always keep together in approaching the God thing. One is, and this is what I like about the Christian tradition, Uh, And this is where I diverge a little from the Buddhist tradition, even though I love Buddhism as a methodology to clean up the mind and get you into purity of presence. But ultimately, the nothingness that's at the heart of Buddhism doesn't somehow speak to my sensibility and heart. What I love is that at the heart of Christianity, you have this idea of intimacy, which is true belonging, being seen, the ultimate home of individuation, the ultimate source of it and the homecoming, that that's what I'd call spirituality, is the art of homecoming. So it's St. Augustine's phrase like Deus in Timeo and Timeo Meo, God is more intimate 
to me than I am to myself. Then you go to Meister Eckhart and you get the other side of it, which you must always keep together with it, where in Middle High German he says, Gott wird und Gott entwirrt. That means God becomes and God unbecomes. Or translated, it means that God is only our name for it. And the closer we get to it, the more it ceases to be God. So then you're on a real safari with the wildness <laughs> right. and danger and otherness of God. And I think when you begin to get a sense of the depth that is there, then your whole heart wakens up. You know, I, I mean, I love Irenaeus' thing from the second century, which said the glory of the human being, the glory of God is the human being fully alive. And I think in our culture that one of the things that we're missing is that these thresholds where we can encounter this and where we move into new change in our lives, there are no rituals to help us to recognize them or to cross them worthily. Right. And that's the reason I've written a new book called A Book of Blessings called To Bless the Space Between Us. It'll be out here in the middle of February, early March. Okay. And what I've tried to do is identify, you know, uh, thresholds like in beginnings, desires, thresholds, calling states of the heart homecomings and then beyond endings rituals for blessings for all the different places and you know threshold is a word you use a great deal in your book on beauty as well it is, yeah and what is that relationship between beauty and thresholds well i think that the threshold if you go back to the etymology of the word threshold it comes from thrashing which is to separate the grain from the husk so the threshold, uh, in a way, is a place where you m move into more critical and challenging and worthy fullness. And I think there are huge thresholds in every life. I mean, I think, you know, that, for instance, like to give a very simple example of it is that um, if you're in the middle of your life on a busy evening, 50 things to do and you get a phone call that somebody that you love is suddenly dying takes 10 seconds to communicate that information but when you put the phone down you're already standing in a different world because suddenly everything that seemed so important before is all gone and now you're thinking of this so the given world that we think is there and the solid ground we're on is so tentative like the way I put it myself is that you know even mountains are only suspended on strings so that's a crucial example of a threshold then other thresholds I've tried to identify in the new book are like on the arrival of illness you know, for a family after on the death of a suicide, for beginning something, for breakup of a relationship, for the different things. And I think a threshold is a line which separates two territories of spirit. And and I think that very often how we cross is the key thing. And where is where's beauty in that? Where beauty is, I think, is beauty. Beauty isn't all about just nice loveliness like Beauty is about more rounded, substantial becoming. And I think when we cross a new threshold, that if we cross worthily, what we do is we heal the patterns of repetition that were in us that had us caught somewhere. Mm -hmm. And in our crossing, then we cross on to new ground where we just don't repeat what we've been through in the last place we were. So I think beauty in that sense is about an emerging fullness a greater sense of grace and elegance, a deeper sense of depth, and also a kind of homecoming for the enriched memory of your unfolding life. I want to ask you, I think we're right when we began to talk about beauty, you rightly said that in this culture we tend to associate beauty with glamour, and I think if you 
if you just mentioned the word, if you just threw it into a, you know, to a commonplace conversation, someone might just think of a, of a beautiful face, of a famous beautiful face, right? And I want to ask you, I mean, when, you when, when you think of the word beauty, what, what pictures come into your mind? When I think of the word beauty, some of the faces of those that I love come into my mind. Um, when I think of beauty, I also think of beautiful landscapes that I know. Then I think of acts of such lovely kindness that have been done to me by people that cared for me in bleak, unsheltered times or when I needed to be loved and minded. I also think of those unknown people who are the real heroes for me, who you never hear about, who hold out on lines, on frontiers of awful want in awful situations and manage somehow to go beyond the given impoverishments and offer gifts of possibility and imagination and seeing. I also think always when I think of beauty because it's so beautiful for me is I think of music. I love music. I think music is just it. I mean, I think that's I love poetry as well, of course, and I think of beauty in poetry. Mm-hmm. But I always think that music is what language would love to be if it could, you know. <laughs> uh, right. I have to say that um, I discovered Celtic music, uh, you know, after going to that part of the world, um, Scotland especially, and Celtic music for me has this completely, you could say this about Beethoven as well, but in a very particular way, um, it, it seems to express the greatest joy and also the deepest sorrow as, as, as almost indistinguishable from each other and yet both mm, with a kind of healing force. I, don't, I, I can't even put words around what That's I... That's beautiful what it, you've said though. Because I think there is that. One of the things I'm always amazed about Irish music, for instance, is how in some way the lines of the landscape find their way into the music, the memory of the landscape almost, the memory of the people too. And that in some sense, despite the sorrow that we've endured, and I mean Ireland, it's not fashionable Mm -hmm. to say it now, Ireland has hundreds of years of an awful history of and suffering. And I feel that, that you hear that in the music You, you hear it in the music, you do. Even in the... Even in the fast music the and the light game music. Yes, there, you do, you, yes, you do. Yes. You hear it there. You hear the undertones and the quiet spaces where the echo of this hauntedness comes through, you know. Mm-hmm. And yet it is absolutely linked with... See, joy doesn't even do it either with this exuberance. Yeah, there's an exuberance or a Uh vitality. Yes. There's some kind of vitality. A famous uh, Irish musician, well, he's very famous. He had just one album, but he was always recognized by all his uh, um, colleagues as wonderful was Joe Cooley, who lived in East Galway. And he came to New York and he was busking on the street. This is an anecdote that's told. And this black man came and sat down opposite him and listened to him. And when he had finished playing, he turned to Cooley and said, that's music that should bring a man to his senses. <laughs> <laughs> right. I thought it was lovely. Yeah. All right. And I know friends of mine who play, you know, like Charlie Pickett and Davy Spillane, and they play, and when they play, they're unreachable. You can't find them, you know. Mm. They're, they're totally, they're serving the music. They're just mm. in another place. I think musicians are amazing people. Like yeah, that girl, Janine Jansen, the other night. I was looking at her, you know, she's late uh, 20s, probably early 30s, and really slim, and I was looking at her and I was saying, how can she know this at this age to play like that? You know? it, was, it was actually in your book that I, I first realized, and I had never thought about this, that the root 
the Greek root for the word beauty is related to the word for calling. That's right. To kalon and kalin. That's it, exactly. That's fascinating. It is, actually, and it means that actually in the presence of beauty, it's not a neutral thing, but it's actually calling you, you know. Mm. And I feel that one could write a wonderful psychology just based on the notion of being called, you know, being called to be yourself and called to transfigure what has hardened or got wounded within you. And uh, it's also, of course, the heart of creativity, this calling forth all the time, Mm. because like in the work that I do, trying to write a few poems, you never write the same poem twice. You know, you're always at a new place and then you're you're suddenly surprised by where you get taken to, you know. But if we think, mm, as you've suggested, as as beauty, um, as relevant and a kind of anecdote to some of the most troubling problems in our world and in ourselves, you know, how do we pursue that calling? Given the limitations, given that a lot of what is around us is not visibly, objectively beautiful and, and may not be. Absolutely, and that's a very fair question. And you know, it's like, in old notions of growth and development, there was always this idea, as Noel Handlin, a poet friend of mine, says, you know, in a poem about her daughter, like me, you needed something to push against, that somehow we needed something to push against in order to grow. Now there's almost a feeling like as the growth should be delivered to us. And I think that from the way you state it is that it's a recognition that there is this dialectic there, that around us, the forces are not kind in terms of either recognizing, awakening or encouraging beauty, but that actually they should be the impetus and the spur to do it. Now, how do we do it? Uh, one way, and I think this is a really lovely way, and I think it's an interesting question to ask oneself too, you know, and the question is, when is the last time that you had a great conversation? A conversation which wasn't just two intersecting monologues, which is what passes for conversation a lot in this culture. But when had you last a great conversation in which you overheard yourself saying things that you never knew you knew, Mm. that you heard yourself receiving from somebody words that absolutely found places within you that you thought you had lost, and a sense of an event of a conversation that brought the two of you onto a different plane. And then fourthly, a conversation that continued to sing in your mind for weeks afterwards, you know. And I've, I've had some of them recently, and it's just absolutely amazing. They're like, as we'd say at home, they're food and drink for the soul, you know. Um, so that's one thing. And like I, I would almost suggest, you know, <laughs> that if you find yourself saying, I haven't had one for a long time, that you should think of where you might find it from some friend, maybe that you haven't visited and go and be with them and, and set it up. Second thing, I think a question to always ask oneself is who are you reading? Who are you reading? Mm. Uh, and... Um, where are you stretching your own boundaries? Are you repetitive in that? And to read new people. And I mean, that's one of the lovely things in America is there's such great writing going on. Yes. Like, for instance, poets here that I love are W.S. Mervyn. And I knew Denise Levertovin. She's just absolutely amazing. And then Jory Graham would be my queen. I mean, I think she's it. I was, when I was recording down in Boulder the other day of the person who was working with me, he had been at the Iowa workshop with Jory Graham. And I said, what? I wouldn't have given to be there. So in fiction, also in our 
art. I mean, always when I go to a strange city, it's my kind of almost liturgy is to find the art galleries and just go and watch and be met there. Then a fourth thing I think is film. Like I was in Galway there, uh, the Drew Theatre about two weeks ago and Jamie Cromwell was over from here and they did Eugene O'Neill's Long Day's Journey Tonight. I mean, I haven't been able to get it out of my head since. And the fifth thing is film. I mean, I think like the works of Tarkovsky, Kieslowski, um, you know, the whole area of French film, some amazing German films that are out now. And they just bring you to a different place. Like a friend of mine, obviously, was saying, you know, have you anything to suggest for us, like to talk to the children at evening or whatever, you know, about ethics and all that. And I was saying, buy uh, Kieslowski's Decalogue, which is the Ten Commandments. Right, They're right. all short films. Mm-hmm. And they did it. Every evening after dinner, they, and they watched, watched those ten they films, watched, and then they talked, and they mm-hmm. had the most amazing discussions. Mm. <coughs> Sorry. And so, what does? We've really been going an hour and ten minutes. What does? Um, what does beauty? So we're saying that just that kind of exposure, that kind of seeking out beauty, does, that works. That works on us. That works on us, and it becomes part of us because you can't set out to do beauty like in a how-to kind of manual, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, because it's the opposite capacity that you bring to beauty. It's that receptivity to be overtaken by it. And in the book, I've quoted that lovely uh, thing from Rilke in his essay on uh, Rodin, where he says, at night, when the forest is quiet and everyone has vanished, these animals come to the water to drink. And that's almost like the way it's when everything else has calmed mm. that beauty can somehow overtake you. And I, I, I mean, I, I think a connection with the elemental. I remember a friend of mine from New York phoned me up and she said, I'm in trouble. Like, I'm just in trouble with my sense of balance and who I am. And I don't want to go to see a therapist and all that. And she said, can you recommend something simple for me that will just get me into a rhythm? I said, I can. Really simple. I said, get up in the morning and watch the dawn coming and take time in the evening to watch twilight and just do it religiously for a week and see what happens to you. Mm. And she began something beautiful out of that. <laughs> Can we keep going 10 more minutes? Absolutely. Are we all right? Oh, okay. God, we're totally good. I'll, right. I'll be asking them to read another poem. Yes, I thought you should do that. I have a triptych here of three poems. Could I, is that too much? No, that's fine. That's great. Um, this is a... a, a, a th- This is a triptych, three poems together, and it's essentially about presence, which is a word I love, because I think it's what we're all after, is for presence to become real. So this poem is called For the Pilgrim, A Kiss. And the first one is The Cahar River. Against the lengthening weight of the river, there were phases where the flow had slowed into depths that could be seen to hold their own. Otherwise, the river strengthened its pilgrimage, offering only a passing glance at ground. When the water chose to change its pace over a certain place, the trout arrived, and slowly the river floor took on texture. Gentle accretions were soon to be myriad. The colours changed, the brown and turgid greens gave way to a softer civility of pastels, that took more subtle time to glow. It was a private glimpse of how flowing water made way for presence and marked it. The second one is between things. There is an unwarranted light that brims when the word presence darkens on the page. 
We call upon it when something shimmers on the veil wall of the heart, surprising us who must face the mind against the silence each morning so that thought can keep its word, lest distance overrun our moment home. We pass the darkened stones whose stillness is more than any word we can find for them. The sieve of grass takes down the rain, absorbs it the way the white sand thirst of memory empties to its last depths each human day. The animals wander along, zen minds, freed of everything that is going on, carrying a silence that needs nothing. Their faces still remain nearest to ours, but near is as near as we ever come. Though we watch, we still cannot decipher whether their eyes are windows or wounds. And the third one is body language. The shadowed thinking of the looking eye always on to the hard shoulder of things. It can never rest in light because the heart gives it to feel that the next look might glimpse the white window at the top of the stairs that leads up out of this underworld of echo and shadow and resemblance. If anything, the skin should have been destined to see as it faces everywhere at once. Instead, it dwells blind inside one word, touch. Even blue sunlight by shimmering seas finds it still stuck within its lonely braille, always in the dark, no matter what the light or what sapphire thought might bead it with tears. Perhaps this is why the kiss sweetens the mouth. The lips land ever so lightly on the inside taste of another being. You can taste the wet cling of their taste, moisten it into your own liquidity and your tongue can penetrate and search out that pink cave edged with teeth that cut from the silence the cords of consonant to weave through the voweled out spaces nets to catch the whispers of the heart. Hmm. I would like to to hear about the work you do in corporations, in workplaces. Um, It it seems to me... um, in a strange way, in the 21st century, in this culture at least, you know, some of the some of the most greatest intimacy and community we have or fail to have is with our colleagues at work, uh, and kind of because we spend so much time at work, and it so defines us, you know, our souls, the light and darkness of our souls is on display at work, and yet there's a real question about how do we honor that sort of in ourselves and in others and remain professional. I don't know if that's what you get at in your, in your work with corporations, but that's kind of on my mind. Just because I have a couple of notes made on that, you know. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. I mean, we spend over one third of our lives actually in the workplace. And one of the loneliest things you can find is somebody 
who is in the wrong kind of work, who shouldn't be doing what they're doing, but should be doing something else and haven't the courage to get up and leave it and make a new possibility for themselves. But it's lovely when you find someone at work who is doing exactly what they dream they should be doing and whose work is an, an expression of their inner gift. And in witnessing to that gift and bringing it out, they actually provide an incredible service to us all. My PhD that I did in Germany on Hegel was on the concept of person and the phenomenology of spirit. Mm. And what I tried to do was build a new concept of person based on the mediation of individuality in and through relationality and relationality in and through individuality. And I think you see that the gifts that are given to us as individuals are not for us alone or for our own self-improvement, but they're actually for the community and to be offered. And I think that this is where leadership comes in and work. I believe that the atmosphere in a workplace is absolutely crucial. It's not an attendant extra, but it's actually the milieu that can determine so much. And that's why I think good, wise leadership will be attuned to the vitality uh, of a true ethos and helping to establish it. And I think that um, leadership has, of course, vision and imagination and above all the way above all the way people are met and engaged with it's unbelievable like how infantile we are in our workplaces in the way that we engage with each other mm -hmm. how things are functionalized how uh, people instead of being looked at as subjects and as participating imaginative individuals who have huge infinity within them mm -hmm. more than the thousand mm -hmm. computers that might be in a huge workplace <laughs> right. that they are they are almost addressed like machines and i've always thought that the way you address someone and the way you engage with them is a huge determinant of what actually comes forth from them. And I think that the excitement for me of going into workplaces and corporations is that, first of all, when you go into a boardroom, there's huge intelligence in the room. There's huge intelligence there. And if you get a conversation going, there is an amazing capacity to follow it. There's also, if they bring the likes of me in, a huge willingness to ask themselves critical questions. And that it's amazing the way the implicit philosophy of a corporation can be come to visibility and be critiqued and changed by that kind of interaction. I also think that, you know, up to now, work has been a matter, it's almost like old Christian theology, a matter of intellect and will and the push <laughs> and the force. Right. And now I think people are beginning to realize that imagination is just as important. Right. And also the rules, right? Exactly. Having the rules straight and the hierarchy. That's and right. the order. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. Mm -hmm. Because I think that when you when you approach things imaginatively, then that other possibilities begin to emerge because I think imagination is the great friend of possibility. And, uh, you know, you often see this in new leadership, a situation, a work situation will have been badly stuck and immobilized in itself. And then a new leader comes in, views it through a different lens, reads it in a new way. And then the irony is that exactly the places of stuckness becomes the places of furthest and most intense release. This man that I'm doing the thing with here in Minneapolis, Pablo Gaito, has formed this group for leaders called Being in Concert. And it's like the idea of the concert, like I was at in, the, in uh, Lincoln Center the other mm -hmm. night, is that everybody has their own gift and trying to awaken that gift then and get it into a harmony, the whole thing comes to a different space. And it's what's radically needed 
in our world in these times. And I mean, I have a blessing here that I've done for it, which I might read. Okay. And are you finding, um, do you experience that there is great interest and curiosity and, and willingness to have this new kind of imagination I really in, think th- in, in workplaces. Yeah, I really think there is because I think in most workplaces there is huge imagination anyway, but it's usually practical imagination that's dedicated to productivity and looking at the bottom line. And I think then when they stand back a little and see that the spirit and soul dimensions are not kind of luxury items, but are actually the very origins and sources which will enable everything to flow and unfold in a new way that then they realize that the invisible world is a secret hidden resource that can be released. Mm. And I also think like culturally, you know, that the place of huge business and uh, multinationals and all this within our culture, they are in many cultures now tantamount or equivalent in their mass and power to a nation state itself. And I think that the leaders who are involved in them, if they can be brought to look at their gift in a different kind of way, that it could make for a milieu of work and business that would be more hospitable towards and more generous with the earth and with society. I mean, I know amazing people here, like a friend of mine who's in a huge banking thing here, and the work that he supports in inner city areas is just unbelievable. And like one time, he had all his top executives um, and they were going for a day in training or whatever you call it, and he had two buses ready and tucked them off to work in a food kitchen for the full day. Mm -hmm. And he said the effect it had in the humanization of everybody was absolutely incredible. And I think there's great invitations there. Hmm. This is a blessing I wrote from the new book, um, To Bless the Space Between Us. And this is a blessing for one who holds power. May the gift of leadership awaken in you as a vocation. Keep you mindful of the providence that calls you to serve. As high over the mountains the eagle spreads its wings, may your perspective be larger than the view from the foothills. When the way is flat and dull in times of grey endurance, may your imagination continue to evoke horizons. When thirst burns in times of drought, may you be blessed to find the wells. May you have the wisdom to read time clearly and know when the seed of change will flourish. In your heart may there be a sanctuary for the stillness where clarity is born. May your work be infused with passion and creativity and have the, balance, have the wisdom to balance compassion and challenge. May your soul find the graciousness to rise above the fester of small mediocrities. May your power never become a shell wherein your heart would silently atrophy. May you welcome your own vulnerability as the ground where healing and truth join. May integrity of soul be your first ideal, the source that will guide and bless your work. You know, in, um, in many cultures in the West, in Europe and in the United States, there are very heated, um, there, there are controversies about where are the boundaries between religion and politics and um and that's that's a that's a complicated uh discussion that is that is quite uh stress filled but what i sense and what you know i'm talking about on my program 
many weeks in different forms is that there is this parallel discussion happening that, for example, what you're part of and work with corporations, which is not about imposing religion in workplaces or in doctor's offices um, or in education, but about acknowledging that there that we are that there is a spiritual aspect to human life and that that is essential and um i wonder how you would speak to address some of the fear that arises because i think in the american imagination for example those things get confused and someone might listen to you talking about being in a boardroom and talking about the soul mm, why is that not something that should be af- that we should be afraid of or that even really has anything to do with uh with our rules about church and state or about the line between politics and religion? I think your question is absolutely uh, perfectly poised because, first of all, to respond directly, like I do think that there should be a fear of mixing up religion and politics and money. And I mean, there's a lot of evidence in this country at the moment that the intrusion of religion into areas where it should be kept out of is causing huge damage and causing blurredness that should not be there. I mean, like, I'll go a little bit further and say, one of the things that has always amazed me, in Ireland as well too, and I've come across it, is how right-wing religious people always presume with no analysis that their views are equivalent to the views of God. Mm -hmm. I mean, for those Mm -hmm. of us who've worked in theology and try to ground and excavate something of what truth and possibility might be mean in relation to deity, this bland, blank equivalence is just incredible. And I'm amazed that that they get away with it here, like in in a country where you have the best colleges, like, you know, Harvard, Stanford, all the rest of Columbia, all these places that have incredibly uh, erudite, sophisticated analysts of the whole tradition who in three minutes could say, "Okay, that's your view. Now, just let me dismantle it bit by bit by bit and just take it away because people listening to it presume that that is the truth and it's not because fundamentalism works on inventing a past that never existed and then evoking a false nostalgia for it and it's terrible so the question of keeping things separate is a very healthy good question like I love that Greek phrase you know eternal vigilance is the price of liberty and you know Saint <laughs> Tr- you know and St. Teresa of Avila when she was saying you have, if you have a choice between two kinds of spiritual directors one who's really pious but not so bright and the other one who's really bright but not so pious choose the bright one and I love that hmm. now the second thing is that of course like it's a huge naivety for any organization or any group or for a culture to and it's actually unscholarly to believe that a religion as the locus of the wisdom and the lived spirit experience of a people is a naive empty mass it's a huge resource and the best minds and the most critical minds know that but it's exactly as you've said krista i mean the bland intrusion of a thing in vulgar raw forum which is naive and a bit fascist does awful damage but like to mine the tradition and excavate it for the huge resources of spirit guidance for areas of ourselves that we've forgotten like the word soul comes from the religious tradition and the philosophical tradition and one of the sad things here often is that it's used as a bland receptacle now for the tired energies of psychology Mm. but if you go back at soul and you look at the depth and the fire that's in it like it's a dangerous thing to have a soul and um, I think that for parenting for relationships 
and for all the domains of our endeavour and work. To have access to a religious tradition is a huge, strengthening, critical resource which keeps you wide awake and makes you ask yourself the hard questions. Like I've always thought that tradition is to the community what memory is to the individual. And if you lose your mm, memory, you know, yeah. and you wake up in the morning, you don't know where you are, who you are, what ground you're standing on. And if you lose your tradition, it's the same thing. And I mean... And tradition, like memory, has dark passages. And oh, it has huge dark mm-hmm, passages. Mm-hmm, and I mean, I, mm-hmm. I would say that within the Christian tradition, there are dark zones of complete mm-hmm. horror. But the but weight the, of it is... But the weight of it, like, mm-hmm. and, and, and there are also zones of great light and immense wells of refreshment mm-hmm. and healing. And I think it's a critical question all, always for somebody who wants to have a mature adult, open-ended, good, hard-edged, critical faith to conduct the most vigorous and relentless conversation that you can with your own tradition. And, you know, one of the first books I read as a child, we had no books at home, but a neighbour of ours had all these books and he brought loads of books. That's how I ruined my eyes, like I have to wear glasses. (laughs) But one of the first books I read was a book by Willie Sutton, the bank robber, who was doing 30 years for robbing banks. And in the book, somebody asked Willie and they said, Willie, why do you rob banks? And Willie said, because that's where the money is. <laughs> and, you know, why do we read books? Because that's where the wisdom is. I mean, I find people who are disaffected with the Catholic tradition and all the rest of it and saying, oh, God, I can't take it. And I say, I know exactly how you feel. But that does not mean that the resources that are in it, that you should try and live without them because they're a great help to you. A Swiss friend of mine said one time that a Jesuit told him, you know, he said, imagine you have a beautiful painting, but it's in a horrible frame. Do you throw the painting away because the frame is kind of bad? Now it's not an exact analogy. Mm. But I think there are great resources that could really deepen us like uh, and that we shouldn't because of our disillusionment with the tradition. And the church has gone through massive disillusionment now and warranted. And it's the agent of its own disillusionment. Uh, but like it, there's still there's such beauty there too. Mm-hmm. And you experience in your in the teaching that you do, in the consulting that you do, that 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 can be received and and can enrich can be enriching and and be enriching in many different settings i i absolutely do and actually the people amaze themselves by what they find in the tradition when they go looking for it mm-hmm. and you know like i i put it this way myself that uh, you know 10 or 15 or 20 years ago if you went into a bookshop and you looked at the spirituality section, it was usually down a little corner. There were five or six dog-eared copies and nobody bought them and there they were. Now, if you go, any, if you go into major bookshops, there are huge areas just for spirituality. And this is the way I put it, and I want to be gentle here, is that if you imagine that a book could frighten other books, I would imagine that if some books from Meister Eckhart or Theresa Vavil or Julian or that showed up there, that all these would shrink away. Because <laughs> so much of what's written in spirituality is so poor. And there's no spine to it and there's no substance and there's no true light there. So like my professors in college used to always say, you know, if you were doing an essay or doing a thesis, you know, the first thing you have to do is read the primary sources and trust your own encounter with them before you go to the secondary literature. And I'd say to anybody who's listening to us who's interested in spirituality and who's maybe being coaxed a little away from believing it's all a naive, doomed, illusion-ridden thing, Pick up something like Meister Eckhart or someone of the mystics and just have a look at it and you could be surprised what an exciting adventure and homecoming it could become. Hmm. We should finish. We've gone on so long. We've had a great talk. Yeah, it's been great. Would you like to read some more? Because, you know, what we can do uh, is have all the 
the readings on the website and people go oh there God, and, and they listen cool. to more than what is just that's in the radio it, program. Exactly. I might do something now. For you, do you know um, Parker Palmer? He's a Quaker author, no. educator. No. Uh, he, he says, uh, and this has formed me a lot as I've created this program, he says that in our culture, we've become, we're very adept at letting the intellect speak. We have opinions. We know how to express them. We've become extremely good at letting our emotions speak. But that, we, that, that, that he, he likens the soul to a wild animal, which, if cross-examined, will run back into the oh, woods I of our that. psyche. And he said, um, you know, we have to find ways to... We have, to, we have to create a different kind of atmosphere than we perhaps normally have t- for the soul to, to find its voice, its public voice. And uh, he said we have to create quiet, inviting, and trustworthy spaces for that to happen. I love that. It's lovely, isn't I it? I think that's absolutely true. I mean, yeah. What would you say, what advice would you give in terms of, how, of bringing the insights of the soul and the integrity of the soul into places in our culture where they perhaps have not felt comfortable and also they're have not been have not been treated as resources yeah i think i think you see that it's everything depends on how you bring them in Mm -hmm. because i think sometimes that if you go directly introducing something like that that the off-putting factor can be absolutely huge and i've always thought that the greatest pedagogy is always indirect and not didactic And sometimes if you can make available a possibility without pushing it, it's amazing who will feel called to enter it. Mm. And um, and that's not, you know, I can't give a general script for that. But I mean, I know that there'd be people listening to us like in a relationship who if they suddenly became aware of the soul as maybe the real ground that they were sharing with another person and then becoming aware of that, that then maybe many battles fought on the psychological front about, he doesn't listen to me, avoids this, she does that, da, 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 could be relented from a little, and then the other territory visited a little, and suddenly then maybe the needs which were driving these other things, which are genuine too, would relent a bit, and they could kind of melt away. Because I think that in relationships sometimes that the loneliness is that we nail onto each other at the points of our own patterns and syndromes. And like we could have a wonderful relationship, but we don't go into the vastness or the pasture that could bring it together. Mm. I also think in the workplace that uh, there are ways of being together um, which can go beyond the professional kind of banter. And where somebody raises the level a little bit like, I always like to do this. I'm not saying that my level is high or anything, but I always consider it a waste, like to be honest with you, to sit down and have a lovely dinner and to go to trouble. And I love to cook, to go cooking, you know, and then somebody, people just come in and talk about things. And then I'd say, can we raise it a bit like we're all involved here as artists or whatever we are. And like, where does the creativity come from or what are you working on? Like, I remember that time, for instance, when I had dinner with Robert before our reading Robert Bly, you know, he came in and I said, how are you doing? And he said, no, I'm not going to answer some questions for you. He said, I want to know, how are you doing? What are you writing like? What are you working on at the moment? What are you reading? What are the questions that are? And they were like, we had the most fabulous encounter. Mm. So I think that I also think, and this is a conservative traditional thing to say, I think that at least one evening every week in every family, there should be a family meal. It should happen every evening, but like at least one evening 
where everything else is turned off and everybody's aware this is where we're all sitting down together and where we're going to actually hear each other and where we're going to tune in like because I've been amazed actually when I used to work as a priest you know abuse and bullying and stuff that was going on that the parents never caught it they never caught it because they weren't really looking I mean they were worn out with work and all the rest of it but I think uh, if you sit down at a table with people and if you attend and are really present you'll get you, you, you'll pick up what's actually going on. Mm. I also think that a huge area in this country that is really so important are the prisons. And I'm amazed, like here, that, you know, that everyone forgets them. I remember Daniel Berrigan saying to me one time, if you go to a new city and you want to see what it's like, two places to visit are mental institutions and the prisons. And... Um, you know, all the poor people, OK, they've done wrong. But I must honestly say I've never seen anybody, no matter what they've done, in these orange overalls that they have here and the chains going off, that my heart didn't break for them and that I didn't say, my God, if I was going off to spend my first night in jail, I, I, I wouldn't be able to do it, you know. Mm. And uh, I think there's a huge thing about visiting and all that. And I know some people here that do amazing work in prisons. And then another area, like often at the end of weekends or seminars that I'd give, I'd say, OK, you've come now, you've had a nice time, we've had great discussion and new insights, hopefully. But like to make it practical when you go into your community, like, you know, where could you visit someone in your community, in an old people's home, a hospital, whatever? They don't have to get you don't have to get addicted to it like but show up now and again and give something back like because you know we've no idea of how privileged we are like one of the old sentences that I kind of like because I'm awful critical of my own bits in the Eternal Echoes book is like that the duty of privilege is absolute integrity and I think we're so privileged I think we've mm, no mm, idea mm, of how privileged mm, we are mm. and I might end with um, or I'll read this blessing which is a blessing for a friend on the arrival of illness. Now is the time of dark invitation, beyond a frontier you did not expect. Abruptly, your old life seems distant. You barely noticed how each day opened a path through fields never questioned, yet expected deep down to hold treasure. Now your time on earth becomes full of threat. Before your eyes, your future shrinks. You lived absorbed in the day-to-day, -day, so continuous with everything around you that you could forget you were separate. Now this dark companion has come between you. Distances have opened in your eyes. You feel that against your will a stranger has married your heart. Nothing before has made you feel so isolated and lost. When the reverberations of shock subside in you, may grace come to restore you to balance. May it shape a new space in your heart to embrace this illness as a teacher who has come to open your life to new worlds. May you find in yourself a courageous hospitality towards what is difficult, painful and unknown. May you learn to use this illness as a lantern to illuminate the new qualities that will emerge in you. May the fragile harvesting of this slow light help to release whatever has become false in you. May you trust this light to clear a path through all the fog of old unease and anxiety until you feel arising within you a tranquility profound enough to call the storm to stillness. May you find the wisdom to listen to your illness, ask it why it came, why it chose your friendship, 
where it wants to take you, what it wants you to know, what quality of space it wants to create in you, what you need to learn to become more fully yourself, that your presence may shine in the world. May you keep faith with your body, learning to see it as a holy sanctuary which can bring this night wound gradually towards the healing and freedom of dawn. Mm, beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's yeah. been a lovely conversation. Yes, it has. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>